time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. So yesterday I had to uh, take a business day. Seems like I've been taking a lot of those lately. Got a good program lined up today. Got some strange news stories. We've got some listener email. We're going to listen to Richard Sizek's interview on NPR. And uh, talk a little bit about the emergent church movement and their now open rebellion and questioning of sola scriptura. Hello, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Christ. I'm going to lead off the program here by uh, talking about uh, asking you to prayerfully consider partnering with Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. If uh, if you are being fed, if you are if you feel like this uh, outreach has uh, helped you in uh, learning discernment, refocusing you back on Christ and Him crucified, the biblical gospel, and has given you uh, reasons for faith, I would strongly ask you to consider partnering with uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith to help make this uh, outreach continue to be a possibility. The reality is with the, the change in the economy and things being as difficult as they are, we could use your help. And um, without it, uh, <laughs> some things may change. You just never know. But uh, in order to do that, what we ask you to do is uh, prayerfully consider uh, sending us a gift at this point. And you can do that by writing a check and making a payable to Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, SJC, California, 92693. Again, that's uh, Pirate Christian Radio, uh, PO Box 791, SJC, California, 92693. Uh, moving along to listener email, okay. Uh, Ola from uh, the UK writes, and Ola's she, she lovingly reminds us that she's she's a gal because <laughs> when she first wrote us, uh, um, I messed that up. So Ola writes, she says, "Hey Chris, uh, hello Chris, I'm typing this while listening to the sermon, almost to the end, and the ter- sermon she was listening to is Jeff Noblet's sermon." That uh, melt-your-face-off law followed by that complete sweet gospel. And uh, she says, I'm typing this while listening to the sermon almost at the end. And your review, I have to say thank you for playing this uh, by a non-Lutheran, too. Folks, the gospel's not exclusive to Lutherans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say that good confessional Lutherans, uh, that you have a, a high probability of uh, understanding long gospel properly from them, but uh, you know God's truth transcends denominations, and you know uh, there's it's just that you know we have a higher concentration. Is that how that works? No, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so she says, I, I she says I needed to hear this, and I moved to tears by the grace of God for my vile for me a vile sinner. I'm also so encouraged by your uh, excitement about the sermon. I'm really blessed by this today. And uh, I am saying amen in my heart. And, you know, that, again, that sermon, just, Jeff Noblet did such a fantastic job of really driving us to our knees uh, through the preaching of the law, exposing us to be vile sinners, and focusing us. Uh, the only solution to this situation is to focus in on Christ and Him crucified. And he did such a fantastic job. I mean,. Yeah, how could I not be excited about that? This is just, this is just stellar. This, the type of stellar preaching that uh, that I don't understand how it is 
that this is not what's predominant in Christianity because it brings us the real Christ. It brings us the gospel. And instead, we've traded this for the tinker toys, you know, that, you know, <laughs> of the seeker sensitive movement, the emergent church movement, which, by the way, you know, I've mentioned this, I'll mention it again. They are openly hostile to Sola Scriptura now. I mean, they're, they're, they're making no bones about it. They're, they're putting together apologetic pieces on the Emergent Village website that attack Sola Scriptura. You know, now that uh, Phyllis Tickle has come out against it. I mean, good night. Um, so what are they using in lieu of the Bible? You know, they they engage in deconstruction. You know, they're trying to basically say, oh, you know, that's such a narrow thing and, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. But uh, my, yeah, that's a fair question. What are they replacing in its place? Um, it almost, uh, the best way I can describe it is Gnosticism. I'll talk about that later in the program today. So, yeah, uh, she says, uh, by the way, I'm getting from you and others that, uh, other conservative Christians that I listen to in the USA, that the word evangelical is pretty much a pejorative term. It's, uh, in our circles, it's kind of become that. Um, when I talk about evangelicals, I am at this point referring to those whom I would consider to be, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, they've, you know, they've gone seeker sensitive, you know, it's all law, no gospel. They barely preach the gospel at all. It's self-help pop psychology. Me, me, me. Yeah, me, 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 I, I, I. It's, it's, it's those who are following the church methodologies of Rick Warren, of Bill Hybels, of, um, of... You know, who are trying to be the Joel Osteen-ish type people, even the prosperity gospel. You know, these these folks are just, you know, gone. <laughs> Christ Christ has left the building. What has Christ done for me lately? Yeah, apparently that's the thing. And wait, wait do you hear this NPR uh, interview? I'm going to play it in its entirety. And, and rather than doing a sermon review, we're going to we're going to comment on the NPR uh, uh, flap and that it, this Richard Sizek, who is now the former vice president of governmental affairs and the chief lobbyist for the National Association of Evangelicals, um, this guy's gone full blown leftist, and uh, you know he's he's shared the dais at uh, conferences with uh, the emergent folks. And uh, you, wait, do you hear this interview? I mean, my question is: is what has happened to the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Jesus Christ in the Christian Church? Um, Anyway, she says, um, so going back to this pejorative, I think it's un- I think this is unfortunate. Much of what is labeled evangelical in the U.S. I certainly would not consider to be, but I think that is just me clinging to old terminology when it has become obsolete through misuse over the years. I think, Ola, I think you're right, is that you know, when I was growing up, the term evangelical had some meaning to it, and um, it wasn't necessarily a pejorative term. But as it's been emptied of its meaning, the, the evangel, Jesus Christ, and has been uh, redefined, rethunk, re-everything, reimagined, re-this and re-that, um, you know, it's, the, the term itself has, has changed definitions. The definition has changed, and I don't embrace this new definition. And pining for the old days, you know, is not going to make things change. So we're going to have to pray that God, you know... Turns people around is probably the best way of putting it. Anyway, thanks for the email, Ola. Great to hear back from you again, by the way. By the way, Chick 
sent me a uh, Ooh, she, uh, she sent me a, a, a note on Facebook. She apparently she took a little vacation from the internet, and so she's catching up on uh, on stuff. So she's she, uh, she's threatened to email me some more. Well, it'll be nice to hear from Chick again. Yeah, good to hear. It'll be good to hear back from Chick. So. <laughs> the, the chick. The well, yeah. So there's chick one, chick two, and Mrs. Chick. So there's the chick, right? But she's the original chick. Yeah. So, all right. This, the news today is pretty bizarre. Um, Anglicans add Hindu snowmen and Chinese dragon to Christmas displays. And all I can say is what? <laughs> Are you ready for this, folks? Here we go. Um, the this is yeah. Well, let me find this. That's actually the Christian Post version of this. Um, from the from the UK, the UK headline from the Telegraph UK it reads: Anglicans give Christmas a multicultural makeover. The Church of England has back plans to turn Christmas into a more multicultural event. <sighs> Uh, this is written by Jonathan uh, Wynne Jones, who's the religious affairs correspondent for the Telegraph in the UK. It says it may have become uh, traditional for angels, three wise men, and the baby Jesus to play a starring role in the festive season, but now Hindu snowmen, a Chinese dragon, and a Jewish temple are also to be included in an attempt to make the celebrations more inclusive of Britain's diverse communities. And who's doing this? Is this the British government that's doing it? No, it's not the British government that's that's doing this. It's the Anglican Church in Great Britain. What happened? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's just okay. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Um, uh, Westminster Abbey will unveil life-size snowmen that Anglican church clergy will hope will, ho- will hope will help improve relations and dialogue between other faiths. So basically these are nativity scenes and as part of the Anglican church's nativity scene at Westminster Abbey it not only will you have the baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds and uh, the wise men and angels but you'll also have Hindu snowmen. I'm not making this up. Dressed in turbans with bindi dots on their foreheads, they are intended to demonstrate that Christmas should not be exclusively for Christians. Huh? Right. Apparently Hindus can celebrate Christmas now. I'm just, I'm at a loss for words, which doesn't happen very often. (laughs) The Reverend Jane Hedges, oh boy, that that sentence started off on the ba- on, with a couple of bad words. The Reverend Jane Hedges, a, a canon at the Abbey, said that it was important to encourage people from other faiths to join in the celebrations. Why would they want to celebrate Christ being born? They don't believe in him. They don't trust in him for their salvation. They don't believe that he died on the cross to save them for the from their sins. So what are we going to do? We're going to encourage people of other faiths to join in the celebration of Christmas? They don't want anybody to feel bad. You can't have people feeling bad. Quote, we've done this as it creates a good opportunity for Christians to meet and hear about the stories of people of other faiths, she said. I thought the job of the Christian church was to proclaim Christ and him crucified. To preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Okay? And now Christmas in the UK, 
by the Anglican Church is supposed to be a multicultural, multi-faith celebration. Okay, pulling out a piece of scripture here. Um, yeah, got to go to my Bible because you know, with the way things are going nowadays, <laughs> I've become frustrated. I it's crossed the line from from just being strange to just being outright. You know, this is blasphemous. Okay. Why on earth would I want to celebrate Christmas with somebody who doesn't believe that Christ is God in human flesh, came and died for the sins of the world? I don't understand this. But let me read this passage of Scripture for you. Okay, Now, growing up in uh, American evangelicalism, okay, this was a passage that was thrown in my face, and it generally went like this. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That means you young teenage kids, don't you dare marry somebody who's not a Christian. I mean, that's how it was applied. I've heard that. Okay. But, folks, I'm telling you, this passage has much wider application. Okay. And I would like to read this scripture passage in lieu of what we're reading here coming out of Great Britain and the Anglican Church now trying to make Christmas into a multicultural and multi-faith celebration. First, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Listen to this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's pretty straightforward. I would say so. Okay, so having snowmen dressed as Hindus in a nativity scene in the hopes of... Uh, listen to this. Jane Hedges, the reverend... Jane Hedges, forget the fact that there were no female disciples and that uh, the qualification for a pastor is that they be what? The husband of but one wife? Can show me somebody show me in scripture where it lays out the qualifications for female pastors? Okay. Reverend James Hedges, a canon at the Abbey, that's Westminster Abbey, said it was important to encourage people from other faiths to join in the celebrations. We've done this as it creates a good opportunity for Christians to meet and hear about the stories of people of other faiths. Why would I want to hear the stories of people of other faiths? They deny Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. They deny that he died for their sins. These People in other faiths are trying to save themselves by their good works rather than by what Christ has done. They are following doctrines of demons. And I want to somehow want to hear the stories of these people of other faiths. And so the way we're going to do it is we're going to put up snowmen dressed as Hindus in our nativity scene at our church. I think this is more offensive 
than the than what happened up in Washington State at the Capitol there. Okay, I understand. Yet there's a lot of people who are very exercised about what happened in Washington State. The governor there allowed the these atheists to put up, you know, a, a, basically a sign that had words that was attacking Christmas and attacking Christians, and it was really po- done in poor taste. And and O'Reilly went on about it for weeks. Okay, she finally capitulated, and you know, and you know now they're they're not going to have any inappropriate, you know, attacks against Christmas during you know Christians during Christmas time, you know, sponsored in the state capitol. That's all well and good, but you know the state. You know they they can't recognize any particular religion, okay? It's it, it, so I, I I don't really get bent out of shape when the state gets it wrong, but when the church gets it wrong, Westminster Abbey is going to unveil life size snowmen dressed as Hindus. What is going on here? Quote, wherever you're coming from, there should be something to celebrate at Christmas. Where does it say that in the Bible? She pointed out that for Muslims, they can appreciate the story of Christ's birth because it is included in the Quran, adding that Hindu snowmen were not an attempt to dumb to dumb down. What? Strictly speaking, quote, the message of, of Christmas is about the birth of Christ, but it has a much broader message of peace and goodwill. Really? <clears throat> Hang on a second here. So the message of, of Christmas is just general peace and goodwill. By the way, that's a bad translation from the King James Version of the Bible. Um, let me go to Luke chapter 2 here. <clears throat> All right, let me find this. Okay, here it is. It's Luke chapter 2, 14. Now, let me read it from the King James Version, which is, which is what shows up in a lot of uh, the uh, songs uh, during the holidays during Christmas. Uh, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Bad translation, actually. It makes it sound like, you know, the announcement of Jesus, Jesus's birth means peace and goodwill from God to everybody, you know, and hey, congratulations. It's peace, goodwill toward everybody, regardless of what idol you follow, what what religion you follow. Here's what it says. Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased is the is a better translation there in in uh, Luke uh, two fourteen? It basically is not a universal call of peace between God and men. It's it's basically a call that there's peace and reconciliation toward you know that God is declaring in Christ. And how is this affected? It's affected by faith. Okay, um, so uh, God is. I hate to say it this way. If you don't believe in God, the wrath of God rests on you. If you don't believe in Christ, you are under the wrath of God. And before you think I'm just making that up, let's take a look at John chapter 3. Okay? Listen to this. John three sixteen. We all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. That means they have peace with God. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's for the believers. Yes. So this, the message of Christmas, um, unless unless it's a call to evangelism, 
What we want to do is we want to use the opportunity of Christmas to evangelize the world with the true message of the, of the gospel, that Christ died for the sins of the world. You are a sinner. Repent and believe the gospel. That's thumbnail sketch of the whole thing. Um, unless that's what we're really focusing on. Um, this generic deity, this generic piece, that's hokum. Okay? It's hokum. And the Anglican church in the direction they're heading, this is contradicting the clear words of God to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, I'm sorry, but Hindu snowmen, I would classify them as unbelievers, even though they're just snowmen. Okay, what they represent is a completely different religion, a religion that believes in many gods and believes in in being obedient to them and denies that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. In fact, what are Hindus doing in in uh, in India today? Uh, killing Christians. Isn't that great? So, and they're not part of the nativity story. You're just being historically <laughs> arrogant, there, John. <clears throat> Meanwhile, in the diocese of Liverpool, this story gets better. A nativity is being staged that features a Chinese dragon and a lantern procession. So now we've got this is ridiculous. I'm getting a little exercise here. Let me see if I got this straight. In the diocese of Liverpool, the church is putting on a nativity that that's being staged and it features a Chinese dragon. Folks, does it matter to you that the dragon is the symbol of the antichrist given in the book of Revelation? <sighs> Revelation. Let me see if I can find this. Um, okay, here we go. <laughs> this is hilarious. Um, uh, Revelation chapter 12. Okay. We, we've now got a dragon in the nativity. Sponsored by a diocese in Liverpool. A dragon. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on its heads and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child so that he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had been prepared, which, which she, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This, this is satanic. Having a Chinese dragon in a nativity, in, as far as I'm concerned, this looks just like Revelation 12. Do you not understand what the purpose of the dragon is? To destroy Christ. To persecute the church. The dragon is Satan. And in, the, in Liverpool, in a diocese, a Christian diocese, Anglican diocese in Liverpool, they now have a nativity that has a dragon. Whoops. You've got to be kidding me. 
<clears throat> we we read, so let me read this again. Meanwhile, in the Diocese of Liverpool, a nativity is being staged that features a Chinese dragon and a lantern procession. It has been backed by the Archbishop of York, Dr. John uh, Sentamu, who is taking part in the event via a big screen. The nativity, which is being performed in uh, Scouse, marks the end of Liverpool's year as the capital of culture, Annie Spires, who coordinated the event, said the nativity aimed to give a fresh slant to a familiar story. A fresh slant to a familiar story? So it's just a story now. However, some traditionalists warns that making Christmas multicultural and multi, multi-faith threatened to undermine the Christmas message. You Amen. think so? Amen. Allison Roof, a general synod member, said that Christmas... Is a time for everyone, but the church needs to be confident in its message, which is that Christ came to save people of all faiths and and none. I don't even know what that sentence means. People came to Christ came to save people of all faiths. No, he didn't. He he came to save those who trust and believe in him. She had. Why are they putting such a ridiculous spin on Christmas? It's it's okay. Let's say they need to be confident in its message, which is that Christ came to save people. All right, it's nonsense to make that makes me really quite cross. That means angry, British talk. The Reverend Rod Thomas, chair of Reform, a leading evangelical group, also expressed concern. People want Christians to celebrate Christmas without compromise, he said. It's only by doing this that people of other faiths respect what we stand for, not by attempting to introduce something that is sub-Christian. It's, this all seems very bizarre. It's more than bizarre. It's satanic. I'm serious. I mean, having Hindus, Hindu snowmen, and a dragon in a nativity scene, um, and saying that 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 Christianity, uh, the the story of Christmas is peace to everybody, hogwash. Okay, let me, let's just kind of play this out. Okay, let's send. Let's pretend that um, you are a Hindu. Okay. Well, John, I'm going to give you the a Hindu name, um, uh, Ramesh Patel. Ramesh Patel. Okay, your name is Ramesh. Okay, and you are a practicing Hindu, and your particular favorite, you know, deity. It, let's say it's uh, it's Vishnu. Okay, and uh, you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Instead, you you believe the Hindu mythologies regarding the deities, and you're you're very devout in your um, in your love and adoration of Vishnu, okay? And so uh, you just happen to live in Great Britain, and now you've got Hindu snowmen uh, basically worshiping the Christ Child, okay? There's a couple of different responses that you could would logically have at this point. One, I think, one possibility is you might actually be upset. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you might be upset just because this is a complete adulteration of what you understand the Hindu faith to be, right? I mean, what good Hindu would be at would be worshiping Jesus Christ? Uh, none. Okay. So you you could potentially be upset, right? Yes. Okay. Um. So then let's another potential. Let's say you're not particularly devout in in your in your adoration of Vishnu. And and as a result of it, you like this new multicultural approach, uh, approach to Christmas. And so you decide you're going to have a big group hug with all your Anglican friends, and you're going to celebrate this peace that's being offered through uh, through the Christian God. 
Have you repented of your sins? No. No, but you've been told that you have peace with God. I sure have. Okay. Come, you know, 100%, right? Yes. Okay, so, Ramesh, uh, let's just say that, you know, 50 years from now, you contract cancer and you crump. After believing that you have peace with, with the, the Hebrew God, right? Okay, and that in in you year year after year after year you celebrate with your Anglican brothers this wonderful peace. It's and and you can now celebrate Christmas Christmas as a good Hindu, and uh, you die. Now, I gave you fifty years of life, by the way. Okay, and uh, maybe I shouldn't. Let's just say you get hit by a bus tomorrow. Ooh, I, I like the fifty years part better. Yeah, I know. It's let's just shorten the story. So you die, and next thing you know, you're standing before Jesus in judgment. Okay, and you are of the impression, hey, I've got peace with this guy because these Anglicans said, hey, Christmas is all about peace. And they have Hindus now, Hindu snowmen there at the nativity. And you're thinking, wow, this is so great. We can all just get along and and look at all the religions are, are can ha- engage in a big group hug now. And it's multicultural. And you even taught your, your, your faith in Vishnu to some of your uh, Anglican friends because they wanted to hear about your faith as a result of it. But now you're standing before Christ in judgment, right? Yes. And he's cross with you. And he... And what happens is, is that the books are open and he looks in the book and says, I'm sorry, but your name is not in the book of life. Right. That's that's right. And uh, for lack of a tactful way of saying it, Jesus says to hell with you. <laughs> OK, <laughs> literally to he- and to hell you go. OK. Are you going to be happy and excited about this message that your Anglican friends told you? Are you going to sit there and go, I can't believe my Anglican friends didn't love me enough to tell me the truth. That's exactly it. Huh? So to hell you go and your Anglican friends didn't even love you enough to tell you the real meaning of Christmas. I wonder if they have any Bible verses out there like John three sixteen and 17 or anything like that out there so they can no, read it. You know, you know, these people are just making stuff up now about what Christianity is about. Okay. They're just making it up. You know, well, we could, you know, we want people of other religions to celebrate this so we can all have a multicultural event. And it's important for us to hear the stories of people of other faiths. Really? What communion does light have with darkness? What, what, what communion does the one true God have with demons? None. None. So we're supposed to be evangelizing Hindus and Muslims and and proclaiming Christ and him crucified rather than this this rubbish that's going on in Great Britain. They want to give him a pat on the back and say it's all okay. You're right. What I thought was really interesting is this idea that, uh, you know, that uh, Christmas isn't just for Christians. Rick Warren said the same thing. Uh on one of his interviews a couple weeks ago on the purpose of Christmas. Remember that? Ay, 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 ay. Anyway, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, oh, talk about the Obama nativity. Yeah, they there's a nativity out there. Obama apparently is a, is a very popular figurine to be purchasing for your home nativities. Somebody wants to make some cash on oh, Obama. Man, I'm in the wrong business. I, re- I really, <laughs> I really am. In, why am I knocking myself out? You know, and you know, I, I would just, 
You can get your plates, your coins of Obama, and now your nativity. Right on. So anyway, if you would like to email me regarding uh, how you think that Christmas should be uh, – we should be putting Hindus and dragons in our nativities as, a, as an olive branch to people of other religions. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven, Inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know, nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. 
Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. Well, we're back. I'm just scratching my head. Am I still watching me to tell? You're Ramesh. Ramesh Patel. Ramesh Patel. No, you're, you're John again. Okay. Okay. I knew a, there was a kid I went to school uh, with. His name was Ramesh Patel. And he was Hindu. I think Patel is like Smith in, in yeah, India. Yeah, I, I think so. Patel is a very common name in India. So, anyway... Folks, I can't reiterate this enough. If if Christianity is not willing to put Christ forward as the King of Glory, the King of Kings, as God incarnate, as the only way to God, as He, as Jesus Himself claimed to be, as it, it if we're not willing to unashamedly proclaim Christ and Him crucified as the exclusive way of salvation, what does Jesus says? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me we've got a problem we've got a problem and i'm telling you the emergent church they they are they not only have they abandoned um sola scriptura they are outright attacking it now but the the emergent church is also the head they're they're leading the charge in in some kind of a form of uh universalism and uh, let me let me put it this way okay when we say that christ died for the sins of the world that sentence is not synonymous with that means everybody's saved. Okay? That is not. Those two sentences are not synonymous. The uh, the emergent church, they're proclaiming Christ has reconciled all creation unto himself, and Christ died for the sins of the world. And they stop there. Walter Martin used to say, um, in, in, there's a wonderful lecture of his if you can get a hold of it it's worth listening to it's called the baptism of boldness and he says that we've got to stop telling stop telling people that jesus just loves them jesus loves you (laughs) jesus loves you (laughs) the christian message is more than just jesus loves you the christian message is also that jesus is going to judge you you're going to stand before him in glory and you're either going to be judged based upon your own personal righteousness before you know, in law keeping, or you're going to be judged based upon whether or not you trusted in Christ's righteousness was given to you as a gift. Period. And uh, folks, um, not everyone's going to heaven. Not everyone is saved. And this castrated form of Christianity is not capable of producing Christians. It's impotent. 
<clears throat> from the Christian Post. Headline reads, Obama figurines now top nativity scene add-on. This year, according to reports, most likely to be standing alongside Mary and Joseph or perhaps the three wise men will be another heralded, heralded couple, the Obamas. <laughs> when, was Barack Obama present when Christ was born? No. Am I, am I missing something here? Yeah, it's called money. The Italian city of Naples has for centuries made big profits. There it is. See? Yeah, you're right. Has made big profits through the sale of nativity scene figurines. It is home to some of the finest displays of the nativity scene in the world. And each year, craftsmen in Naples come up with figurines of some of today's best-known public figures, which are often added to traditional displays. This year, most likely to be standing alongside of Mary and Joseph, or perhaps the three wise men, will be another heralded couple, the Obamas. According to sales records, the newly elected first couple has been outselling French first couple uh, Nicolas Sarkozy and Carla Bruni, Italian's own prime minister, Silvio, I'm going to mess this up, Berlusconi, and even the Pope. Well, maybe they already have a Pope one. Quote, the ones we are selling the most are of those of Barack Obama, America's new president, along with his wife, Michelle. Craftsman Jenny D. Virgilio told uh, the Reuters news agency. <sighs> Is Barack bearing a gift to the baby Jesus? I have no idea. Maybe he's given birth to the baby. You know what? Serious, as far as I'm concerned, this is just as bad as having a dragon there. Has the whole world... I mean, has the Kool-Aid from Jonestown gotten into the drinking supply of people of all over the world? If you're selling a nativity scene, why would you be adding on people who weren't there? You know, you know, talk about bizarre. At the Museum of Idolatry, I have the What Were They Thinking nativity up there. If you haven't been to the Museum of Idolatry, though, by the way, folks, I'm the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. And you can get to it at a littleleven.com. A little leaven. Um, hang on a second here while my computer figures out what it's doing. A littleleven.com. And um, in there on the homepage still right now, the front page of it, I have the What Were They Thinking nativity. Okay, aside from having Barack Obama there, this nativity, um, actually, this is bizarre. It features, I, I don't know, I may have mentioned this. this it, it features um, a very large frog wearing a red necktie and a red Santa hat. So you've got Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and a really large frog and Father Christmas. And, and stick now, them all in. Yeah, and then throw the Obamas into there. Does Christianity mean anything anymore? Are, are Barbie and Ken in some of these too? I I have no idea. You know, I have two nativity scenes in my house. Right. And I don't even have wise men in my nativity scenes. You don't even have wise men? No, I don't. You know, so you, you've, you've gone with the scaled back version. Because <laughs> the wise men didn't even show up for a couple of years, That's by the right. way. You know, they weren't there at the birth. I mean, they showed up to, for Jesus the toddler, okay? But f forget the historical aspect of it. I mean, just, you know, who knows? Just add in the Obamas, the Pope, you know, and if you're Republican, you get a John McCain add-on, I'm sure. You're a, a Sarah Palin. And a frog. <laughs> 
a frog and a Chinese dragon. Oh, man. <laughs> you just got out. <laughs> I'm frustrated. I, I'm, I'm like at my wits end. It's like, you know, I, I want to just say I quit. You know, proclaiming the gospel does nothing, right? Who cares? Action figures for your nativity. Yeah, action figures for your nativity, yeah. <laughs> I would like a G.I. Joe with a kung fu grip, you know. I, I read a story today. Get this. In Mexico, the December issue of Playboy, the front cover featured, quote, the Virgin Mary, and she was only wearing, like, a head dressing. And, and, you, know, and you could see... You know, not not everything, but you know, she was. Let's say, Mary was looking pretty sexy. In all her glory, not quite in all of her glory, but let's just say that you know it was more than an inappropriate front cover. Okay, I mean, real Christianity is completely on the ropes right now. This is ridiculous. Okay, we're being attacked left, right, and center, and of course. You know, Playboy International issued a somewhat of an of an apology, you know, for featuring the Virgin Mary in in provocative dress on their on their cover. I mean, do you think God's just going to smile on them? And you know, God loves you when you be you. Rick Warren says, <laughs> just you know, God loves you and has a special plan for your life. And oh, man, anyway, sorry, I, I I'm just I'm to a point where I'm frustrated. I'm absolutely frustrated. Let me read this from uh, the Emergent Village blog, emergentvillage.com. They have a blog there. The headline reads, reads so long, Sola, question mark. Uh-huh. It's, it's got a question mark, but believe me when I tell you, it's, it's a, it's a full-out, outright attack by Emergent Village's Steve Knight against Sola Scriptura. Here we go. Uh, actually, it's, it's, it, it was posted by Steve Knight, but it's, it was written by Nick Patton and reposted from Sound and Silence. Quote, one of the pillars of the Great Reformation is the doctrine of sola scriptura, meaning the Bible alone. In this, according to the Wikipedia definition, the Bible is held to be self-authenticating, clear, per, uh, perspicuous to reason, self-interpreting and the final doctrine uh, the final doctrinal authority to those who have grown up in protestantism especially in an evangelical flavor these points might seem so so self-evident and beyond reproach that it might seem strange even heretical to question them your obvious question is if you're going to dump sola scriptura what are you going to put in its place okay we continue from the emergent village blog but in the light of the types of questions being raised in the emergent conversation, especially in the wake of focusing events like the res- recent Great Emergence Conference, you know, because the the profoundly deep wise sage Phyllis Tickle said that it's not a matter of if sola scriptura falls, but when. Sola scriptura is coming under scrutiny, and I want to offer some thoughts on this, some my own and many from others more, more studied. As we engage in the notion of sola scriptura, many shades of meaning emerge. Yeah, I know. To some, it is a welcome justification of their deeply held love of Scripture. To others, it helps to define a high view of Scripture in the face of liberalizing relativism in the emergent church, which embraces similar concepts. And yet others, it is a doctrine at the very core of faith, an assurance of life itself. While I love Scripture and see myself to hold a high view of it, I question the doctrine's modern application. 
Oh, okay. It's, uh, so we're going to attack it based upon the fact that you know it's, it has a modern application. In essence, I see it as excluding and reducing truth, as reactionary and ironically as unscriptural. But before we detail these objections, we need to look at a few background assumptions. What we understand as the word of God, the canon of the scriptures as law, not narrative, and the, and the taints in this view of enlightenment rationalism. So he, 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 so he then goes on to pretty much just uh, take out his shotgun and start blowing holes in Sola Scriptura. Huh. But apparently that's what he says. He says Sola Scriptura is, is ex, it's excluding truth. It excludes truth. So the question that comes up is a fair question. You know, well, if you're not going to have Sola Scriptura... Can you think of some – what would be the alternatives that we would have? Phyllis Tickle said it, you know, sola scriptura is like having a paper pope, right? Well, here's some proposed alternatives. Um, the magic eight ball. <laughs> think about it, okay? Some scholars I've heard argue the case that eight is the number of God. So the magic eight ball can give us some, you know, we want to include more truth, right? And, the, and we should include the truth coming from the magic eight ball. Um, how about tinfoil hats? Ooh. Yeah, those, those are really fashionable. Um, you know, because because Sola Scriptura is hopelessly uh, insufficient, we don't want to limit God's truth. So using tinfoil hats, you should be able to uh, tune into secret tra- transmissions coming from God. Right, because those are capable of getting on the right harmonic frequency, <laughs> right? Amazing. Yeah, think about it. Uh, rain dancing. You know, there's people who do rain dancing, and and they get into a trance-like state when they do it. Okay, so I mean, people who are getting communications from God while rain dancing. I think we should consider that. How about water witching? You, you, you've seen people who run around with those two, you know, those two dowsing rods, and they yeah. supposedly cross at the right time. You know, you know, we could, you know, we can put up some words out on a on a big, you know, a big slab of cement, and you know, and water witch, you know, just douse, use dowsing rods to, uh, to get, you know, to, you know, get, you know, put sentences together, right? We don't want to exclude truth, do we? Um, how about meditation? And I'm, what I mean by that is like the Eastern kind. Get in your, bend yourself into the lotus position, or in my particular case, the overweight bovine um position and get really 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 quiet so that you can hear this 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 still small voice of the divine right yeah every time i try that my stomach starts rumbling i think it's god's like no this means i'm hungry sounds like tigger yeah rumbling in your tumbly Uh uh-huh rumbly in my tumbly exactly how about the uh, ouija board Oh yeah. We don't want to exclude truth, do we? No. You can no. get this, this very spiritual. Okay, there are people who are very sincere and spiritual claiming they're getting information from the Ouija board. We don't want to exclude truth now, do we? No. No. I mean, what about the baseball and the rosary? Yeah, the, you could do that. Yeah. Um there's a thing called algory, which is kind of gross. Um you can in algory you uh you read the uh, entrails of dead animals. <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah, you know, we could go back to reading tea leaves and coffee grounds. Those are some options, right? 
looking forward to it. Yeah. You know, then 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 you've got voodoo. Okay, we don't want to exclude truth, do we? We don't want to limit it. Um, voodoo is very spiritual, and there's people who you know claim that they're getting direct communication from the spirit world via voodoo. You know, you think of that character from uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. You know that 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 voodoo witch woman, the Haitian. Yeah, exactly. And you know, with the with the pigeon accent going on there, uh, and uh, what she what does she do? She takes bones and throws them on the ground and reads what the bones say. We don't want to exclude truth, do we? No, we wouldn't want to do that. I mean, we got to we got to embrace truth, whichever channel it might be coming to us from. Right. Uh, um, how about the tarot cards? I mean, who cares that the Bible forbids this kind of stuff? We don't want to be beholden to a paper pope. Your palm? Yeah, palm reading. See, there's a completely, you know, take a paintbrush and paint your palm red. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not it. I yeah, think yeah. That's, that's palm reading. That's palm redding. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. You're right. Palm redding. So here we've got all these alternative solutions to uh, – to Sola Scriptura, but let's see, we don't want to limit God. But, you know, what's really funny is is that, um, you know, I don't think the emergence would be advocating such things. But the thing is, is that when you talk about you know, saying Sola Scriptura limits truth, um, it shows, first of all, you don't have any concept of, you know, what it is that's truth. Okay. And like I've said over and over and over again, okay, when you, when you put these things into perspective, Okay, number one, Jesus Christ affirms that the Torah and the prophets, as we have handed down to us in the Old Testament, is the word of God. He calls it the word of God. He refers to the stories in those in, in those books as if they were true historical accounts. He claims that he knew Abraham. He knew what Abraham was hoping for. He says that uh, that the flood is a historical account and that people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage up until the time when they got into uh, into the ark, right? Jesus talks about the Old Testament as if it's the very word of God. Okay? What are his credentials? Oh, well, he's God in human flesh, right? Now, Chris. I I know, but how did he prove it by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate? So we wouldn't want to have less of an opinion about Jesus, about the word of God than Jesus had. And Jesus, I mean, over and again, what did he affirm? that the Old Testament writings were the very words of God, right? That's what he claimed. That's what he claimed. But it doesn't stop there, okay? Let me give you a couple of uh, passages here. If, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John chop, chapter 8, okay? <sighs> Listen to this. John 8, verses 31 and 32. Now, Maybe I'll back up so we read it a little bit more in context. I'll start at 21. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 21. Uh, Jesus said to the Jews, I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Well, there's a lovely thought. Um, where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Jesus claiming to be God there, by the way. Gospel of John, chapter 8, uh, verse 24, Jesus says you're going to die in your sins unless you believe that he's God. I am. That's, he uses the divine name for himself from Exodus, chapter 3, the burning bush. 
account. He uses the divine name. Remember Moses is at uh, you know is on Mount Sinai. There's the burning bush, and God's talking to him, and and God says, "Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go." Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Moses inquires of God, "Who should I say sent me? What's your name?" And God says, "I am." That's his name. I am. Tell him I am sent you. So here in John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am. You will indeed die in your sins. Quoting scripture. Yeah. He's, he's using the divine name for himself, claiming to be God and saying, unless you believe that he is God, you're going to die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to him, well, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I, uh, what I have heard from him. Now, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to him, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and, just, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Okay? So Jesus is saying that when he's lifted up, where was he lifted up? On the cross, that they will know that he's God. And he who sent me is, the, is, uh, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wow. Jesus is saying that his words, if you abide in his word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus wasn't saying, if you abide in my word uh, and uh, Joe's word and the word coming from the Hindus and the word coming from uh, Islam and from other sources and other things like that. No, he's saying, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not going to put you in bondage. It's going to set you free. So where is the only place, and I do mean this, the only place where we have a sure and certain word the words and teaching of Jesus Christ. Scripture in the New Testament. There is no other book that you can go to. You can't go to the Gnostic Gospels. You can't go to the Nag Hammadi Library. You can't go to anywhere else, the pseudepigraphal writings, and expect them to give you a true and accurate account of Jesus' words and deeds and the things that he said. The New Testament gospels give us a sure and certain word of what christ said taught and did and jesus said if you abide in my word if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so what uh, jesus's true disciples they abide in his words not the word of men not other competing religious experiences but abide in the word of christ that's how you know a disciple these are people who abide in god's word and they're not in bondage to sola scriptura they know the truth and that truth has set them free right let me read some more okay um let me find this john 17 Uh, in john 17 jesus gives his high priestly prayer okay um let me let me find this uh, and then, and then, 
Okay. You know what? I'll do this after the break. <laughs> I know it's in John 17. I just have to find the verse because I'm a little exercised today. It's just a little bit exercised. They have dragons in nativity scenes. <laughs> this is you know, the people in in the Christian church are attacking sola scriptura. What is going on in the Christian church today? Anyway, if you would like to email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cannon fodder written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus Schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. Talking about the emergent church and their outright rebellion, hostile, hostile rebellion against sola scriptura. We were just reading how Jesus said that uh, if you abide in His Word, then you are truly His disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Those are the very words of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus didn't say we were going to get information from outside sources. Where's the only place that we can know what Christ said and have Christ's words? It's in the scripture alone. Okay? I'm a little upset. Let me, let me read something else to you. This is from uh, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Very important section of scripture here. I want to read this to you. Um, yeah. Jesus saying, uh, while I was with him, this is verse 12, John 17, starting in verse 12, because context is important. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's an interesting phrase that the scripture might be fulfilled. Christ himself having a high view of scripture. You want to have a less view of scripture than Jesus Christ? You do so to your own detriment. Okay, and he even says that Judas's betrayal of Jesus Christ was to fulfill the scripture, which are the very words of God. Jesus continuing in chapter uh, verse 13 says this, but now I am coming to you, speaking to the father and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Verse 14 says, Jesus says, I have given them your word. So Jesus Christ claims that his words are actually the words of the Father. Okay? And he says, the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You you want to know somebody who's of the world? They reject the words of Christ. They reject God's word. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus praying to the Father before he is crucified, in his high priestly prayer, asked the Father to sanctify the apostles in the truth and said that God's word is truth. Are we to be sanctified by special revelation that we're getting from outside of Scripture? No. We are sanctified in the word of truth, which is the gospel. It's the Scriptures. It's, it's what we find in Scripture. Jesus continues, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. How are we sanctified? In truth. Where's the truth? God's word. Chapter 17, verse 20, it continues. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. They may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Check that out. Jesus says that not only does he pray for the disciples, but he's praying about everybody who comes to be a Christian, who who has repented of their sins and received forgiveness of sins and faith through the proclamation of what? The words of the apostles, right? Over and over again, if you just listen to what Christ is teaching, Christ is a, is a sola scripturaite, okay? And he puts his stamp of approval on the writings of the apostles claiming that people are going to come to faith in him through the words that they write about whom him. Right? Yeah. (sighs) Let me find this. uh, Let me find this passage. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let me read this again in context. Acts 2. Listen to this. You want, you want to know what the Christian church was like in its earliest form? Okay. All right. 242. And they, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Where can we find the apostles' teaching today? Scripture. Scripture. Anywhere else? No. 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 Nowhere else. You will not find the teaching of the apostles anywhere except for in God's word, in the scripture, in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere. In fact, whether or not something was apostolic was the key to whether or not it got into the New Testament. The, the Old Testament canon was a closed book long before Christ ever walked the earth. And Christ puts his stamp of approval on it and says that's the word of God. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, does he have to meditate and hear a new word from God? No, he counters the devil with God's word. Okay, Jesus says, if you are his disciples, you will abide in his word. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And how do we see this played out in, in, the, uh, in the early Christian church? Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what was the apostles' teaching devoted to? Jesus and his words, right? The proclamation of Christ. Uh, let me find this. I'm looking this up. How does that passage go? Um, we, we sing it in the liturgy. Um, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These things are written. These things are written. It's from the Gospel of John. Um, let, me let me widen. These things are written that Jesus is the Christ. Here we go. Aha! <laughs> it's it's Gospel of John chapter twenty verse thirty one. Let me write let me, uh, John chapter twenty. I love computerized Bibles, man. Because you know what's funny is is that you know I, I know a lot of scripture, but I don't have it necessarily memorized. But I have whole phrases, you know, and whole different motifs kind of stuck into my head. And when I do that, I don't necessarily remember the, the address for the passages. So if I could just you know remember how the passage goes, I can get to it. Um, Your brain's not an index? What? Your brain's not the index? You can just go in there and find it automatically? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Where did you get where'd you get that idea? <laughs> um, hang on a second here. Oh, man. Okay, uh, verse 31. Here we go. All right, we've got to read this in context. John chapter 20, okay? Um, the God, this is John, the author of the Gospel of John, who was the one whom Jesus loved. That's you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he descri you know, describes himself. You know, one of the sons of thunder, the Boagenes. Can't even pronounce that right. This is the, listen to this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, Okay. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There was lots of things that Jesus did, but they didn't all get written down. And they're lost. They're gone. Okay? But what we have in the apostolic testimony, in the, in the gospels, in the epistles, um, is it's all that we need. Because what, what did the apostles, who did they write about? Jesus, right? Yes. Okay. So 
even even the Gospel of John is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> Let me find this other passage. Um, um You know, by the way, uh, all scripture. Yeah, listen to this. What other book can we say this about? Okay. Listen to this. Second Timothy chapter three. Paul writes. Okay. Uh, so I'll start in, in verse 12 because context is important. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So much for your best life now, right? Um, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood, how from infancy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, writing to, to Timothy, tells him to continue in the sacred writings, the scriptures, the holy scriptures. It doesn't tell him to meditate and get some other uh, some other things going on, to get some secret knowledge here. No, he points him to God's word and says to uh, continue to abide in them, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Think Paul had a high view of scripture? Yes. How about sola scriptura? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And here's what he says. All scripture is breathed out or God breathed and is profitable for teaching rebuke, rebuke for correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. Is there any other, are there any other words that we can claim are God breathed? No, no, none. Yet the emergent church considers uh, Sola Scriptura to be a paper pope. The emergent church is basically saying that it's excluding truth. No, the scriptures exclude lies. God's word is truth, and anything that contradicts God's word is a lie. There is no sure word that we can go to other than God's word. And anybody who would tell you otherwise is deceiving you. They are an agent of the devil. So there we have it, the emergent church. I'll put a link up to their uh, So Long Sola article uh, yeah this is the headline listen this is one of their subtitles or subheadings sola scriptura is excluding and it's too simple <laughs> it says perhaps the most fundamental problem with sola scriptura is the first half sola in context there were five solas Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola dea gloria, representing the Reformation's pillars of fundamental belief. Sola scriptura, however, seems to have taken on a life of its own in the minds of those pondering the question of ultimate authority in an age of biblicism. Or biblism. Anyway, in essence, the problem is, is that it's a closed starting point that will result in, in a limited system. That's a problem? No, that's, that's actually a good thing. Because, again, my question is, where else can you go to get a sure word from God? No place. No place. Where else can you go to get the sure words of Jesus Christ? Scripture. Only in Scripture. That's it. No other place. Yeah, it's a closed system. And it's a limited system. Intentionally. Why? Because not 
everything that everyone says in the name of God or spirit or whatever is truth. And the devil is in the business of deceiving people. That's his mark and trade. That's his bread and butter. So we want a limited system. Why? Because by having a limited system, we have sure and certain words that we can trust. Oy, 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 oy. So Dr. Seuss is not a good reference then. No. No. Call me close-minded. <laughs> All right. Now, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about uh, Richard Sizek. I'm going to play some stuff that he uh, said on – in fact, we're going to play the NPR uh, – interview that he did now richard sizek the reverend richard sizek is now uh no longer the um the vice president you know of government policy and stuff like that for the nea he resigned last week because of the controversy created by this interview now i want to play this basically with the we're going to look at this through this lens what does that anything he say have to do with christianity with biblical christianity Okay, and this comes back to what Sola Scriptura. Christianity isn't what you think it is. Okay, there's really only one true Christian, that's Jesus Christ. Okay, Christianity is what Christ says it is. And what and the things that Christ's word and the words of the apostles focus on, that's what Christianity is to focus its attention on. Okay, so my question as we listen to this is, um, what does this have to do with biblical Christianity? Because you're going to hear some pretty crazy things in here, and uh, it's this is this is just leftist stuff, okay? But it doesn't have anything to do with biblical Christianity. So uh, let me. Uh, it says this I, is fresh air. I'm Terry Gross. The evangelical base was pivotal in the election and re-election of George W. Bush, but it wasn't enough to get a McCain-Palin victory. So in this post-election period, what influence does the evangelical community have in the Republican Party? And what will, it, what will its goals be during the Obama administration? My guest, Richard Sizek, is the chief lobbyist for the National Association of Evangelicals. The organization represents about 45,000 churches from over 50 denominations with roughly 30 million constituents. By the way, my question right off the bat, I mean, what's, what's the agenda going to be during the Obama administration? When did when did the church's agenda ever change? It, we don't get to set the agenda, do we? No. Christ got to set the agenda. What did he say? Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you? Right? Or in Luke 24, you know, that starting, with Jeru- you know, starting in Jerusalem, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations? Okay, Jesus gets to set the agenda because Jesus is the is God. We don't get to set the agenda. All right. So now we're talking about what the Christian agenda will be during the Obama administration. We, since when did an, an, a, a political administration d- make it so that we have to alter or change the Christian agenda? The Christian agenda is to proclaim Christ repentance and forgiveness of sins and make disciples by teaching people to obey all that Christ has said, right? Yes. That's Christ's mission statement. He gave it. He gets to set it. We don't get to change it. I mean, who are we to change it, right? 2006, Sizek was described in the L.A. Times as, quote, a slightly younger, considerably less pugnacious and less reflexively Republican generation of conservative leaders bidding to dislodge familiar faces such as Pat Robertson, James Dobson, and Richard Land, unquote. 
The environment and climate change have been priorities for Sizik, which has put him at odds. The environment and climate change, folks. I, you know, I know I'm going to upset some people when I say this. I've looked at scientific evidence that basically debunks man-made climate change. In fact, if, if if the world was really warming, then why for the past six years has it been cooling? You know, Al Gore's doom and gloom stuff about the the environment? I'm sorry, I don't buy into it. I think there are rational scientific reasons not to believe it. I'll put a link up at uh, fightingforthefaith.com that just I would like you to consider. Okay? But when did the Christian agenda have anything to, you know, when did we switch our, from focusing on preaching and proclaiming Christ and him crucified, calling people to repentance and, and receiving the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and making disciples who, what do they do? Abide in Christ's word, right? Okay. When did that agenda switch to focusing on climate change? I, you know, that's, I, you know, or any, even, with some older evangelical leaders and with some in the Republican Party. Richard Sizek, welcome back to Fresh Air. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, and I realize this might be personal and you might not want to talk about it, but in interviews before the election, it sounded like you might be tilting toward Obama. So I'm going to ask you who you voted for, knowing that it's your right to not tell us. <laughs> so, uh, Terry, let me answer it this way. In the Virginia primary, I voted for Barack Obama. Okay. In other words, uh, I would rather not <laughs> yeah. say in the uh-huh. election general mm-hmm. just wh- whom it is that I did vote for. But that's an indication, but it doesn't say definitively. It's an indication. Let's see. There were two people on the ballot, uh, two two major people, right? Yes. There was Barack Obama and McCain, and he voted for Obama in the Virginia primary, and he says that that's some kind of an indication. Code talk. He voted for Barack Obama. In other words, I don't want anybody to think because I'm the lobbyist in chief for the National Association of Evangelicals that because I voted one way or the other, I can't represent their concerns. So I believe I can. I happen to think in the primary it was the best choice. People disagreed. Evangelicals did in this final election, general election. But I think all of us today believe we want this man to succeed. Absolutely. If we don't think that, there's something wrong with us. How important is faith to you when you're voting? I think it's very important, but it's not the factor, nor should it be, though there are those who by identity, politics, and culture war, they do that. Okay, so your faith isn't the deciding factor on how you're going to vote. Is it a factor at all? I mean, what, 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 and, mm. <laughs> okay, and... That's the most important factor. I say absolutely not. Character first, of which faith is a part. Of course, it helps determine one's values. But there are other factors, such as the philosophy of government, two parties, two different philosophies, and lastly, the issues. So it's possible for me to disagree, for example, with a candidate on high-profile issues and still believe that on the basis of character or philosophy, he's the better of the two candidates. So in this case, uh, it it would be possible, as evangelicals did, to disagree with Barack Obama on same-sex marriage and abortion and yet vote for him. We know they did, not because of those positions he stood, but in spite of those positions. By the way, Barack Obama, he's not just pro-abortion. He's pro-infanticide, okay? That if, 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 
if a fetus, a human child, happens to uh, survive an abortion, Barack Obama believes in killing it, letting it die. Okay, just just a little side note there. Um, I mean, in my way of thinking, that's like, um, you know, if you're in favor of killing people, I mean, how is that any different than than uh, Hitler's stance towards Jews wanting in rationalizing killing them? I mean, this is a big issue, big issue, and it is one that, you know. Where, where does God have anything to say about this? If, if if our allegiance is to Christ and to God and repentance of sins and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, understand Christ is offering forgiveness to people who have murdered their children through abortion. But believe me, our position is we proclaim what God said, thou shalt not murder. And how can you say that somebody has character if their pos- their stated position is one of pro murder, just a, it's it's a it, you know important question. Now I know people are going to quit back and say, "Well, George Bush murdered millions of people," you know, because you know, the war that we you know. Okay, I'm not defending George Bush wasn't on the on the ballot by the way, you know, not this time around. Okay, but uh, I think the war has a lot more nuance than abortion does. We continue. So how big of split do you see now within the evangelical movement over what direction the movement should head in and what issues should be emphasized? It's hard to know, Terry, because even the younger evangelicals, those that went for Obama, they clearly are pro-life. They're conservatives, but they also, well, 32% of evangelicals voted for Obama. Younger evangelicals, that is. That's twice the number that voted for John Kerry four years ago. And this is a big increase in states like Colorado. Younger evangelicals. Okay, I want to make a point here. And that is is that uh, these are kids, younger evangelicals, who've grown up in the the fun-obsessed, purpose-driven, biblically shallow youth groups of American evangelicalism. And they don't know their scriptures. They just don't. I don't think we've done a uh, we've done a, a a good job of creating Christians out of our youth, and uh, this the, the, so the stat doesn't really surprise me. Indiana and North Carolina, so the younger evangelicals are probably the future with that broader palette, and they will determine the future of this huge movement. That, well, by some surveys estimates, if you include children and the rest, a hundred million people, one third of all Americans. So in, in that younger group that you're describing, is uh, gay marriage not a, a priority issue? It's not as high, no. In fact, uh, if you look at some figures, these uh, younger evangelicals, they disagree quite strongly with their elders on that subject. Uh, young evangelicals disagree with their elders regarding gay marriage. Is it that they disagree with their elders, or do they disagree with the word of God? I'd go with the latter. Yeah, it's they disagree with the word of God. The problem here is is that young evangelicals, these are people who, who self-identify as Christians, God's word no longer has the say. I feel like we should recognize gay marriage. 
Well, who cares what you feel? God's word says that homosexuality is a sin. There's no such thing as a gay marriage in God's eyes. And the church has something to say about that. And what the church has to say is not its own words. It proclaims what scripture says as the word of God and as God's sure word. See what happens when you get rid of sola scriptura? If you don't know your Bible, then you, 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 you don't even know that God's word says no on that issue? Do you think that that's in part because younger people are growing up in an environment where they know gay people? There are so many yeah. gay people mm-hmm. who are out. And once you know gay people who are out, maybe it's not so threatening. Threatening? It, it has nothing to do with being threatening. It just has to do with, you know, I'm a Christian. God's word says it's a sin. You, we, there's no way we can condone it as a church because the church is the body of Christ. Right? Yes. Okay. This is not – these dots are not hard to connect. But apparently they are today. Absolutely. The influence of their generational peers is clear. Four in ten young evangelicals say they have a close friend or a family member who's gay or lesbian. And so – I have a family member who's uh, homosexual and it's still a sin because God's word says so. It's different than their elders, younger evangelicals. They, well, 52 percent favor either same-sex marriage or civil unions. But it's not just on this issue, Terry. For example, fully two-thirds of younger evangelicals say they would still vote for a candidate even if the candidate disagreed with them on the issue of abortion. And that's in spite of the fact that younger evangelicals, they are decidedly pro-life. But they also rank other issues, economic issues, the environment. These other issues are very important to them. In fact, health care is just as important to the younger evangelicals as is abortion. Health care. Uh, the health care is a Christian issue. Um, Barack Obama says that health care is a, he thinks it's a human right. OK. Um, now, I understand taking care of people is an important thing. OK, but if they invent uh, if, if a pharmaceutical company invents a drug that makes it so that I'll live to be uh, 200 years old, then, you know, I don't have a right to that technology. That pharmaceutical company has the right, since they invented it, to sell it to me at whatever price they choose. And if I were to basically elect a government that says to that pharmaceutical company, well, you have to give that to me as a right, and I'm going to make you give it to me at the point of a gun, is that ethical? Is that mo- I'm going to force you to give me health care. Because it's my right to have it. What happens when you do that? Healthcare will become a very scarce thing. There will be no incentive to being in healthcare, right? We continue. So they have a more pluralistic outlook than older white evangelicals. And they have a decidedly different posture with respect to the role of government here and abroad. Do you think that the evangelical base... Mm-hmm. has lost any clout within the Republican Party because the Republicans lost the presidential election. Oh, it's inescapable, that loss of clout. You hear it in the party's leaders who are questioning this. They know that is the leaders of the GOP. They know that they can't win without these votes, but they can't win the rest of the voters that they need at times because of the way evangelicals have behaved within the political party. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I remember Dick Army once referred to one of our leaders as a bully and a thug. Well, those are harsh words. But that was a leader of the Republican Party referring to how he was getting pressure. Well, the tactics that have been employed have altogether backfired, it seems to me. Everyone knows that. And so, look, you have to have a vision and you have to have a strategy, a strategy that works. And if your strategy isn't working, then rethink it. And so to make its way forward, the Republican Party is going to have to, I think, come up with a vision that appeals to people, a strategy that in fact works, and uh, its adherents, those who claim it as their own, have to employ tactics that don't destroy it in the meanwhile. I imagine you didn't agree with Sarah Palin on environmental issues. For example, her emphasis on drill, baby, drill, and also the fact that she said she wasn't sure if human behavior uh, contributed to climate change. Now, climate change and the environment are issues you're trying to put much more toward the top of the evangelical Yeah, I couldn't. Agenda. You're right. I couldn't have disagreed with her more. Just a year ago, we found out from climate scientists that the melt in the Arctic had turned into a rout. It was happening so fast it was as if your hair turned gray overnight. Now, I have a receding hairline, but I don't have uh, my hair turning gray overnight. Well, You know, when I was growing up, you know what the, the big scare was? No. Uh, the global cooling. You know, when I, I remember as a kid news stories that talked about global cooling, you know, that what, we weren't going to be able to feed ourselves because the earth wasn't going to be able to produce crops and the earth was cooling down. Do you, do, you, do you want to know what really causes global warming? What? The sun. That big fireball out in space, it warms the planet. I don't know if you knew that. I've heard something to the side, yes. <laughs> so, yes. Ugh. okay. I've lived long enough to actually see a cycle. You know, when I was growing up, they were talking about the, the sky falling and there being global cooling. They were, you know, of, you know, these glaciers that were going to, you know, come at, you know, just expand like crazy. And then what happened is, is that the, there's natural cycles to how the planet works. Okay. And if you look at the history of the planet, there are, there are, there are warming cycles and there are cooling cycles. I don't understand what triggers them. Okay. But let me give you the most definitive proof that humanity is not responsible for global warming. Are you ready? Here we go. You Have you ever heard of the Ice Age? I've heard of the Ice Age, Okay, yes. yeah, you've heard of the, uh, the Ice Age. Have you ever seen the artist depictions of what human look like, humans look like during the Ice Age? Yes. Uh, pretty much running around in buckskin. Yeah. Okay, not too many of them, by the way. There were no roads. There was no... Um, there were no skyscrapers. There were no coal-burning factories, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there was, you know, the, none of that. Okay. And he, he, human carbon footprints were nothing compared to they were now. I mean, we're probably talking less, you know, we're talking millions of people on the whole planet as opposed to the 6 billion that are running around on the planet right now, right? Okay. No roads, no construction, no, none of that stuff. And, um... Yet, the Ice Age came to an end all by itself. Did you know that large portions of New England during the Ice Age were covered in glaciers? No one's missing them right now because if those glaciers were there, then there would be people, – people wouldn't have property in New Hampshire, okay? 
I'm serious. I mean, the, 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 during the Ice Age, the global, the, these, these glaciers were ginormous. There's entire valleys over on the East Coast that were carved out by glaciers. We ain't missing them right now. And yet they disappeared thousands of years ago all by themselves. And this was before factories and cars and roads and all that kind of stuff. Did we cause that? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. I think there's some bigger things going on here. Okay, so um, you know, I'm all for being good stewards of the earth. Okay, but running around and acting like we should somehow feel guilty because we've got a carbon footprint. Show me in scripture where it says that our carbon footprint has to equal a particular thing. Who sets the standard for what carbon footprint is appropriate for a human being? Man. Yeah, from what? From what? Don't know. Okay. So, okay, I, basically my point is is that, okay, yeah, let's be good stewards of the th- of the earth that God has given us. Okay? I am not in favor of polluting rivers, of you know, raping forests or whatever, anything like that. You know, you understand? But the thing is, is that there are resources. As long as we responsibly handle the natural resources given to us, I'm all for, um, you know, using the earth to you know, to fuel our cars and take care of things like that. And quite frankly, I just don't buy into this idea that man is the one responsible for the global climate change. Because the the Ice Age ended all by itself without any human ability to change it. And we don't miss all the uh, glaciers that used to cover Great Britain, that covered large portions of Northern Europe, that car- covered all of Canada. You know, if they were still there, then you wouldn't be able to, a lot of people, you wouldn't even have your homes. Right? Right. So... There's a right Christian response and there is a wrong Christian response, and it's not our job to politically jump on the global climate change bandwagon without asking some tough questions. Okay, and again, I'll put some. I'll put a link up tonight on fightingforthefaith.com that basically shows that uh, uh, much to the contrary opinions of you know, predictions of Al Gore and his ilk, um, the planet's cooling again. And it has been for six years. You know, it snowed in Baghdad in 2008 for the very first time in recorded history. And don't tell me, oh, well, that proves global warming. No, it doesn't. It doesn't snow in Baghdad to prove global warming. Anyway, we continue. It's what happened to the environment. An area the size of Colorado was disappearing every week. And the Northwest Passage was staying wide open all September. For the first time in history. And so to look at this and not see what's happening, I think is, well... You know, it's a little bit uh, uh, presumptuous of him to say that's the first time in history that there, you know, that, that happened in, you know... How long have we been paying attention to the global ice caps? As a, as from using technology that we have? Very recently. You know, there was a major warm-up in the, in the, uh, on the Earth during the, uh, during the Dark Ages. Did you know that? No, this is true. Look, there's there's data to prove that it was sort of the ignorance is strength idea. Well, not it's not strength. Look, strength is knowing what's happening to the world around us, and moreover, as a Christian, we we can't uh, claim to love the Creator and abuse the world in which we live. Uh, to do so is like claiming to be a fan of Shakespeare and then burn his plays. Define what it means to abuse the planet. How do we define that? According to some people, 
we do that if we own an SUV. According to some people, we do that by having a house. Okay. So show me where in scripture it says, how does it define abusing the planet? And how am I doing that? So is there a big debate in evangelical circles now about what the future of Sarah Palin should be in the Republican Party, whether she is the future or whether she is a problem? Oh, I think there certainly is a certain amount of that debate going on. But I think people are sort of content to let Alaskans decide that before she becomes a national candidate. Again, she has to run for re-election, right? So, so you're thinking maybe Alaskans will vote her out of office, thus ending her political career? Maybe. We, we don't know. But I don't think that you can humbly walk into the future and not understand that we don't know all the answers. And if you don't have a little bit of self-awareness about that, well, I don't think you can embody the Christian values of humility and justice and walking humbly with your Lord. There- so because Sarah Palin is certain about a few things, that that somehow has made it so that she is not walking humbly before her Lord. Where do, the, where, where do these definitions come from? This is very postmodern, the way he's talking. There's something missing there that I just didn't see, and you're sensing it here. In other words, a certain humility about it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I like look forward to seeing that demonstrated in Barack Obama's policies. The younger evangelicals have a different attitude, in fact, uh, even toward the use of military. I happen to be among these evangelical young people, even though by age I might not qualify, right? And the idea that, well, you can have a sort of anti-science, anti-intellectualism and walk into the world with a big stick and hope to be able to win these wars. You can't win these kinds of wars we're fighting uh, with a big stick. We know that. Well, let me ask this isn't a political program. Just want to point out uh, how many attacks have there been in the United States since nine uh, eleven? None. Okay. D- d- does that count as a win or a loss? Well, uh, yeah, and uh, um, we're pretty much you know getting winding down. Iraq is now a pretty much a peaceful nation. The the the, the troop buildup seems to have uh, eradicated all the rest of the terrorists who were trying to cause chaos in the country seems things seem to be settling down and the Iraqis are pretty much governing themselves is that a win or a loss sounds like a win sounds like a win I thought he said we can't win these things are we thinking critically here are we just thinking ideologically so you you really identify with the uh, concerns and priorities of younger evangelical voters, and one of those priorities is uh, it's it's more of an acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage. A couple of years ago, when you were on our show, I asked you if you were changing your mind on that, and two years ago, you said you were still opposed to gay marriage. But now, as you identify more and more with the younger voters and their priorities, have you changed on gay marriage? Listen to this. I'm shifting. I have to admit. In other words, I would willingly say I believe in civil unions. Mm-hmm. I don't officially support redefining marriage from its traditional definition, I don't think. We have this tension going on in a movement between what is church building and what is nation building. And I lean in this spectrum at times, maybe we should concentrate on building our values in our own movement. We have become so absorbed in the question of gay rights and the rest that we fail to understand the challenges and threats to marriage itself, heterosexual marriage. Maybe we need to 
reevaluate this and look at it a little differently. Why is it an either or? By the way, somebody asked me, uh, I, I talk about bifurcation fallacies, and somebody asked me how you spell it. It's B-I-F-U-R-C-A-T-I-O-N, bifurcation. It's an either or. He's, he's just set up an either or. It's both and. It's not that, okay, here's the deal. And the reason why it's a both and is because if we were, if, if the Christian church were actually focusing on proclaiming Christ and him crucified for sins and, and teaching everybody to understand what the scriptures teach in its entirety, the full counsel of the word of God, then you would, you would touch on issues regarding homosexuality. You would touch on issues that, that touch on marriages, that touch on parenting, that touch on other things. God, why? Because the Bible talks about such things. But it talks about such things in light of the gospel. Okay? And at this point, one of the problems of American evangelicalism is it really comes down to competing agendas. The agenda of evangelicalism for many years under Dobson, under uh, Pat Robertson, under you know the, the moral majority has, has focused a very narrow aspect of, of, their, of their resources on a particular right-wing agenda as, as we've identified it, okay? But the problem is, is that um, what's happening now is, is that you have a reaction against the right-wing agenda and we're going to replace it with a left-wing agenda. Okay, uh, folks, the agenda of the church is to proclaim Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins, calling people to repentance and belief in Christ. Now, we as Christians happen to have dual citizenship. We are citizens of both the kingdom of heaven and of the United States, at least you know here in the, in, in the United States, or those of you listening in the UK, you're, you're citizens of the United Kingdom. You're also you're those in Australia and New Zealand. You're citizens of your respective countries. And if you're in a democracy, then what happens is, is the people are sovereign and people vote. And the reality is, is that God's word sanctifies us, shapes our thinking, shapes our values, and um, it helps us understand what sin is and stuff like that. And as a result of it, there's... The, it has implications on how we vote on things, okay? But the problem here is, is that what we're seeing is, is is that we've had a particular agenda now being replaced with a different agenda, one right wing, one left wing. Folks, it's not about a narrow agenda. It's about proclaiming Christ and him crucified and, and teaching the full counsel of the word of God. When you do that, all of this stuff gets taken into consideration, not just some of it. Not just one particular agenda over another. And the problem is, is that the, with the left agenda, they're openly rejecting the clear word of God. Doesn't matter if God's word says that homosexuality is a sin. We still feel that the church should sanction homosexual marriage. Really, the church should do that. So pay close attention because this is really interesting. There's a real interesting mix going on here regarding the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. I'm always looking for ways to reframe issues, give the biblical point of view a different slant, if you will. And look, at we have to. The whole world literally— A different slant? Can you give the biblical point of view a different slant? Uh, no. What does that mean? You're, that means you're redefining what the biblical view is. Your your own interpretation. Yeah, you're changing it. The planet is changing around us. And if you don't change the way you think and adapt, especially to things like climate change, 
scientists like Bob Doppelt, he says, well, if you don't adapt and change your thinking, you may ultimately uh, be a loser because climate change in his mind, he's a systems analyst, has says has the capacity to determine the winners and losers in your, uh, your life. Um, will never be the same. Growing up during, I say, the Great Warming. Our grandparents grew up during the Great Depression. Our parents, well, they uh, lived in the aftermath of that and became probably the most, uh, well, the greediest generation. And our generation, this younger one, needs to be the greenest. Stephen Wilbin of Blue. Really? When did this become the agenda of Christians. First of all, I dispute the science based on the science I've read. That raised this question that I, I want to put to you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Barack Obama supports the right to have an abortion, but he also advocates reducing the number of abortions when possible. Will you support him in abortion reduction, or do you see that as a diversion from the work of banning or restricting abortion? I will support him. I will support Barack Obama in finding ways to reduce abortions, absolutely. Now, is, is that it's, controversial within the evangelical movement? For some, yes. I've already been called one of the devil's minions for taking this position, but it's Because it's seen as compromising? Yes, it's seen as compromising. Mm-hmm. And, but that's, again, that winner-take-all mentality that you have to have it all. In politics, I've learned over many years, less is more. I think finding those who are in trouble, in crisis, helping them through this, and if need be, even supplying what government presently doesn't do, namely contraception, is an answer to reducing, you see, unintended pregnancies. So the church should be supporting the government handing out condoms so that people can commit fornication. Condoms with Bible verses. You know, don't don't say that because there's probably such a thing out there. Okay, so the church, the Christian church, should be in the in the business of helping to reduce abortions by supporting the government in handing out condoms to people who are. Uh, engaging in premarital sex or extramarital sex so that they don't have an unintended pregnancy. Um, as a Christian, do we consider sexual sins to be less terrible before God than a uh, than murdering somebody? You shouldn't. No. They're both sins. And why would the Christian church want to partner with a government who's basically saying to kids, hey, it's okay for you to have sex, just don't, you know, and this is going to just go, you're going to do what you're going to do. And, and here's some way of making it so that you don't have an unintended pregnancy. Scary stuff. I mean, you know, you think about, uh, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You know, you had the angels of God showing up in Sodom and Gomorrah and they were said they were going to sleep in the public square. And uh, lot basically said, no, 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 come on into my house. And there were people beating on the door, you know, Hey, those guys that are staying in your house a lot, send them out here so we can have sex with them. Is what the passage says. I mean, maybe God wouldn't have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah if you know if the guys had said, send them out so we can have sex with them, and don't worry, we'll use a condom so that we don't spread diseases. Would God have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah then? Uh, yes. Yeah, still. 
When did God's word stop being authoritative? I'll tell you when. It's when we stop teaching it. When we stop teaching our children and catechizing our children in what God's word actually says. And when we turned it into a therapeutic self-help book and we proof text it to solve our little life's boo-boos and problems and hang-ups, we didn't, we didn't create Christians. We didn't, you didn't create young Christians. We created young heathens who have no concept of what the gospel is and what the Bible actually says. And they're now filling the churches and in, in control of things. These, I, wait, wait. I think I heard you say government's applying contraception. That's, yes. that's got to be controversial among evangelicals. Among some it would be, but I don't think so. We are not, as I have said previously, we're not Catholics who oppose contraception per se. And let's face it. What do you want? Do you want an unintended pregnancy uh, that results in abortion? Or do you want to meet a woman's needs in crisis? Who, frankly, a woman's need in crisis. Can we examine that rhetoric for a minute? Because the way I understand how things go, okay, let's just kind of work this out here. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They say, hey, you're kind of cute, right? All right. Isn't love not necessarily a crisis, but supposed to be like a great thing, right? Yes. Okay, so okay, so a, a guy goes to college and he meets a girl. The girl meets the boy. They say, "Wow, the, we're going to hit it off." With, you know, things they go out to dinner, and um, and because they have no concept of right and wrong, right after dinner or whatever, they decide that they're going to engage in recreational sex. Is that is that girl really in crisis? Doesn't sound like it. No, it sounds like this is a girl who has no concept of right and wrong, and as a result. You know, by the way, I mean, how hard is it? I mean, do they not teach children in in high school exactly where babies come from? Uh, Elementary school. Yeah, elementary. So so let me see if I got this straight. So little kids in elementary school actually are taught the basics of the whole birds and bees thing. Oh, Oh, yes. Okay. And because they understand biologically how it works, I'm sure they're also told how to prevent a pregnancy, right? I wouldn't assume yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, and it's not like these things are some kind of a global mystery. You know, 19-year – teenage kids, I mean high school kids, okay, they're basically engaging in a behavior that creates human life outside of marriage because they haven't been taught what God's word is. And in many cases, even if they knew what God's word says, they don't care. They're going to do it their way anyway. So why is it we're talking about all this crisis talk? A woman, a girl who is in love with her boyfriend who is sleeping with him, that wasn't caused by a crisis. Right? Yes. Okay, so when did all when did we all of a sudden oh it sounds so loving you know, cuz we're taking care of a woman in crisis. We're giving her we're giving her the ability, the power to prevent uh, a pregnancy. It sounds so loving and and embracing, but when, why is the church involved in this? What's the role of the church again? Oh, I know. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching to observe all that I have taught you, uh, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed to all the earth, right? Well, if repentance and the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed in all of the earth to every nation, then fornication, homosexuality, um, abortion and things like that get brought up under the category of uh, a sin for which Christ died. And we Christians are not called to live the life of libertines. Oh, Jesus died on the cross so I can do whatever I want. 
boink my girlfriend, you know, engage in homosexual sex, you know, do we illicit drugs? Who cares? Steal, you know, all that kind of stuff. Would buy better contraception avoid that choice avoid that abortion that we all recognize is morally repugnant at least it is to me i'm sorry but premarital sex is morally repugnant to god why would the church want to encourage that so what else is on your list of priorities now as a chief lobbyist for the national association of evangelicals what, what, what do you look like forward after what, January 20th? Yeah. Uh, l- let me say that one of the bigger war and peace issues that I'm struggling with and attempting to find a, a role on is that of the threat of nuclear terrorism. A mm-hmm. new report just came out this week saying that it's greater and realer than we ever thought before. I'm actually going to Paris to be part of the unveiling of a new movement called Global Zero, uh, which is an attempt to understand that – Whereas before, the possession of nuclear weapons was a deterrent, it no longer is. In a world in which you have non-state actors who can potentially wield weapons of mass destruction, the mere possession of weapons of mass destruction becomes morally problematic in ways unheard of before, if this makes any sense. And so, therefore, this movement called Global Zero, uh, supported by both John McCain and Barack Obama, uh, will come forward, I think, in the next week and months ahead to communicate a strategy to begin to address this threat of nuclear terrorism. That's one thing I, I want to be a part of. I think it's very important. Uh, let me see if I have this straight. Just want to make sure I logically understand this. Okay. It was uh, the fact that we had the ability to blow up the Russians, you know, what, 10, 15 times with all of our nuclear weapons or 100 times. Who cares? That that deter- that kept that was a deterrent for them to a nuclear to annihilate us with their nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. Okay. So now, just want to make sure I understand this logic. So now, because some whack job Islamic fundamentalist fascist could potentially get his hands on a nuclear technology, that in that that you know us having nuclear weapons actually caused that guy to feel that way. So the solution is for us to get rid of all of our nuclear weapons. That's what it sounds like he's saying. Does this guy actually smoke weed? This doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. <coughs> Holy guacamole. And what does this have to do with the gospel and the, and the forgiveness of sins and repentance and faith and Jesus Christ and all, nothing? For evangelicals, after all, I, most uh, would not make any connection, but I've been with the NAE so long that I was – on staff back when uh, I actually proposed a letter to then-President Ronald Reagan, uh, which became the Evil Empire speech, to the association back in 1983. And while few remember it, that speech, known for challenging the Soviet Union, included a line from the president advocating the abolition of all nuclear weapons. Most would not remember that, and yet it was true. It almost became a reality at Reykjavik, in conversations that president had with uh, the president of the former Soviet Union. So I happen to think this is one of the premier issues, along with climate change, uh, that will impact the rest of life here on Earth. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know, I, you know if we nuke each other to death, that would definitely impact you know, climate change. By the way, um, 
which do you think has expels more pollutants? Um, all of the industrial nations or a single volcanic eruption? I don't know. Single volcanic eruption. In fact, uh, like when Mount St. Helens went off, okay, Mount Pinatubo, remember Pinatubo a, a while ago? Whenever a volcano erupts, it, it, it expels so much stuff into the atmosphere that it would take humans, I think, somewhere in the lines of four to six years, maybe even ten, to, to, to put as much stuff into the atmosphere as a volcano. What we really need to do is just legislate against volcanoes. Good idea. Yeah. We should make a law that says they can't erupt. You need to be a lobbyist. Yeah. Think... I've heard you say that you want to find, and you want your group, the National Association of Evangelicals, to find some common ground with Obama and work with him. Is that going to be hard to convince a lot of your members to do? Well, for those uh, to whom all compromise is simply uh, submitting music to political correctness or whatever, for them it's going to be very hard. But for most evangelicals, I don't think so. After all, we believe, you see, that God is alive and real, and he lifts up some and puts down others. So if you're a conservative, you don't believe that God is alive and real. And ultimately, we have to say, God has put this man in this position. It's our responsibility to pray for him, to support him, work with him in whatever ways he can. It yeah, we, rec- we should be praying for him. Absolutely. In fact, Scripture is really clear. You pray for your leaders, okay, because God is the one who puts them there. So, all right. Or for some bridging outward, that's Robert Putnam's term, bridging outward to collaborate with Barack Obama to do what is right by so many different people who need the kinds of policies he's espousing. And that will be hard, but should we do it? Yes. And will we hold him accountable when he runs uh, against what we happen to think is right and good and proper and all that? No, 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 no. It's not what we think is right and good and proper. It's what God has defined is right and wrong, what is good and proper. God is the one who decides these things, not me, not you, not however many people happen to be in the majority of evangelicals at any given time. It's God's word that dictates these things. We will do that, but we'll do it in a nice way. And we're not going to be, I think, uh, objectionable in the way that some people have in the past that, as I said, objectionable, code talk. Don't tell somebody they're wrong. Don't tell somebody they're sinful. Don't tell somebody they're going to hell. Don't tell somebody that their that their policies, their views have run afoul of the word of God and that God is going to judge them. See, we d- we don't believe in a God that judges. We only believe in a God who blesses. Okay? Um apparently, you know, all the the economic turmoil that's happening here in the United States, um you know, we shouldn't worry that that God is judging us. But then, you know, God only blesses. God is only positive. He's only love. He's a, a kind of an absent-minded, forgetful old grandfather who's got like those little butterscotch, you know, candies in his pocket, you know. And basically, he'll give you the butterscotch and says, don't tell your mother I gave it to you. Just don't tell your mom I gave that to you, right? God, yeah. yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. What an interesting view of God. We're going to do it in a positive way. John the Baptist wasn't exactly very positive. By the way, we're going a little bit over today. John the Baptist wasn't exactly positive. Um, let me look up the word brood. Brood of vipers. Here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, John the Baptist uh, from Matthew chapter 3. Check this out. Uh, and by the way, uh, who was it that was the forerunner of Jesus Christ? Who prepared the way of, of Jesus Christ? That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Okay. Um, let me listen to this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice anything, repentance and the forgiveness of sins is what Christ said should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Okay, uh, for uh, for he, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a be- leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. It definitely has some hygiene issues. He would not ever have gotten a call at a purpose-driven church. Um, then Jerusalem and uh, then Jerusalem, and all of Judea and all the region of the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Did you hear that? Okay, so he was calling people. He was saying to telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what what happened is people responded by going out, being baptized and confessing their sins. Right. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now the axe is laid at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Was that positive? No, no. Yet this is the guy that Christ himself chose to be the forerunner for his earthly ministry. Yeah. I notice a, a supreme, this is, this kind of stuff is missing from what the Sizek guy is talking about here. But then again, I have no idea how any of this stuff he's talking about has to do with Christianity. One Republican leader to call uh, one of our numbers a bully and a thug. That's not who we are. Let me, let me just ask you. A, you think John the Baptist was a bully and a thug? Good question. Are you waiting for some of the evangelical leaders who have opposed you on issues like your concern about the environment and climate change? Are you waiting for them to retire and leave the stage? And I guess I'm thinking most specifically here about James Dobbs. <laughs> and, but they're, they're, they're specifically, you're talking about James Dobson. Are you kind of hoping and praying that D- Jim Dobson would crump and go away? Are you hoping that he leaves the stage so that you can take over and fill the power vacuum with your leftist agenda? I'm not waiting. Uh, I would want Jim Dobson to join us because this is about creation care. It's what the Bible teaches. It's godly. It is right. So I'm not. No, I disagree. The liberal agenda on global warming really isn't about creation care. It's about something very different. Okay, it has a political agenda with it, and that 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 goes with a particular economic model that I don't particularly like. Socialism, making me feel guilty because I happen to own a car, and use it, and I happen to use incandescent bulbs, as if I'm somehow evil and committing a sin against Mother Earth if I would dare to not drive a smart car to work. You know, if my carbon footprint is above, above a particular number, who di- who dictated these things? So, no, Richard, I, I got I'm sorry, but I don't see it as so cut and dry. This earth care stuff is not nearly as simple as thou shalt not murder. It is not nearly as simple as thou shalt not commit adultery. 
It's not nearly as simple as, as the scripture that says that homosexual offenders will never inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that if your carbon footprint is above a particular number that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. So this, uh, this, this agenda that you're promoting, you call it creation care. But it's not nearly as simple and cut and dry as what we're hearing here. And you're creating a new law. I don't see it in God's word the way you say it's there. Wait to hear what, how he defines the gospel, though. Here we go. For him to leave the scene at all. I want him to join us. In other words, I'm always looking, Terry, for allies, not adversaries. Always allies. This is important. It's strategically important for Christians to care for this earth, just as it's important for Christians to care for the family. These are equals. They're both part of God's concern. They're both part of his heart. And so, no, I'm not waiting. I appreciate what you're saying, but at the same time, I think the odds of you winning over James Dobson on this are probably slim. So, do you- <laughs> yeah, I, I work for Jim Dobson, I, and I know Jim. Do- <laughs> yeah, no, he's not going to. He's not going to join this guy. I think what's going to change <laughs> in the long run is that that he and some of the other people who oppose your work on um, putting environmental issues near the top of the agenda. Do you think that what's going to change is that they will retire and there will be a new guard? Well, inevitably that occurs. Even some of the names on the letter that opposed me back just a few years ago are gone. But that doesn't change the fact that we all will pay uh, a price for not changing. The earth is reaping the consequences of our actions when we don't re-examine our habits of consumption, right? Re-examine our habits of consumption? Man... Apparently, just being an American is uh, is sinful and contrary to, to uh, creation care. Let, let's see how he defines the gospel, though. That's coming up here in a second. Uh, the poor around the world, well, they're reaping the consequences of our failing to meet our obligations. This is not something that can wait for any of us to retire. Some may be wanting me to, but... The gospel paints a vision of society that is relationally and environmentally sustainable. What do I mean? What? The gospel paints a picture of of society that is relationally and environmentally sustainable? What gospel is he talking about? Where is that in the scripture? I'm sorry. I don't know what it is that he's that he just said, but that is not... First Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just got to review God's word here because I'm one of those people who likes limiting um, information or truth to God's word. Um, Paul writing about the gospel, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you believed in, in which you stand. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse one, verse two, uh, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you un- unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. Um, okay, that's that's the, the gospel defined. Christ died for our sins. Where in the Scripture does it say that the gospel paints a picture, or the gospel something that's relationally... Well, let me back this up and... See if we got this right again. This this is probably one of the most outrageous definitions of the gospel I have ever heard, and it's not founded in Scripture. It's this is this is founded in emergent mythology. Let's hear this again. The earth 
is reaping the consequences of our actions when we don't re-examine our habits of consumption, right? Uh, the poor around the world, well, they're reaping the consequences of our failing to meet our obligations. This is not something that can wait for any of us to retire. Some may be wanting me to, but the gospel paints a vision of society that is relationally and environmentally sustainable. What do I mean by that? Relationally sustainable. It's a message of hope that we all get along, not just get along, but work together. What gospel is he reading? Where is this gospel that paints a picture of society that's relationally sustainable and environmentally sustainable? These are completely foreign concepts in the scripture, the way he's, he's phrasing. And this, this has nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Where's this painting a picture of something that's relationally and environmentally sustainable? What Bible is he reading? Or is he like these emergent folks? We just don't want Sola Scriptura, and we're going to redefine the gospel any way we want, even if it's some kind of a neo-Hegelian Marxist way of viewing things, as, it, as in, in, in view of environmental and social justice. Is that what Christ came for? Environmental sustainability and social justice? Or did he come to forgive sinners of their sins and atone for their sins and propitiate God's wrath? Believe me when I tell you, the two, um, there's, they're very different. Or a cause which is bigger than ourselves. Since we're in the final weeks of the Bush administration. You know, I think I'll stop. I'll just stop right there. So uh, Richard Sizek uh, last week bowed out, resigned his post at the National Association of Evangelicals because of the views expressed on this NPR ad, uh, this NPR interview. And I can see why. You know, because, folks, what is the task that we are supposed to be about? What is the agenda that Christ has set for the church? You know, I've said it over and again. The, the agenda of the church is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We are to call sinners to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ didn't come to earth for a Marxist social justice, environmental sustainability uh, message. In fact, you talk about uh, somebody who has a bad carbon footprint. It says in Scripture that when Christ returns, he's going to melt the elements with fire. He, Jesus is going to be the worst environmentalist in all of history. He's going to care so little about the creation that he's going to kill it. But see, the thing is, it doesn't stop there because Christ came to save us through death. And so even the earth dies and is resurrected. Jesus says that he will bring a new heavens and a new earth. For the old has passed, the new has come. So, I, you know, listening to all of this stuff, if you hear if you hear some frustration in my voice today, it's absolutely there frustrated on so many fronts. we got to defend Sola Scriptura, focus on Christ and Him crucified, preach the real gospel, and preach the full counsel of the Word of God and stop this nonsense. This is not the agenda that Christ came for, nor is it the agenda that He set. The agenda He set is the proclamation 
of the forgiveness of sins is to go and make disciples, disciples who abide in the word of Christ. That's the job of the church. Quit with, and see, the thing is, it's Isaac and his kind of group. It's Isaac and his people who are the same ones who are advocating putting Hindu snowmen in, in Christian nativities and, and having Chinese dragons in Christian nativities. There's something seriously wrong with this here, folks. Something seriously wrong. Sizek and his emergent buddies are destroying and gutting the church. And enough is enough. We must proclaim Christ, Christ and him crucified, must defend sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and to God's glory alone we do these things. Because if we don't, if we don't stand up and say, no, enough is enough, we're going to be taken over completely by these people. And they're non-gospel. Anyway, we're done for the day. Yeah, you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith, and if you would like to email me and uh, let me know how I'm some kind of a right-wing radical or closed-minded sola scripturaist, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, until next time, God bless.